So this evening's talk is in a part a continuation of um, the series I've been giving the last two Mondays. But I think for those of you who didn't come, I hope that today will stand on its own as well. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> what I've been doing in these series is talking about some of the key elements of our meditation practice. And uh, the first evening I talked about mindfulness itself. And mindfulness is often understood as the central practice that we do here. And then last week I tried to talk a little bit the difference between mindfulness and mindfulness practice. As if the, just as if you could, uh, the differences between running and the practice of running are slightly, are two different things. You can be running from, you know, running from the police, <laughs> you know, and you could be practicing running and it's a very different thing, right? And uh, so there's a mindfulness practice, which is broader in scope than just a simple factor of mindfulness. And um, the mindfulness practice is very closely supported and connected and feeds into uh, what in English is called concentration and concentration practice. And, um, and so there's much to be said about the role of concentration in Buddhism, Buddhist practice, and that's a little bit what I'm going to do tonight is talk about concentration um, and its role with mindfulness, how they work together. Um, one quote I want to give you uh, from the Buddha, and I say early on so that maybe it'll stick. Especially if I tell you, maybe it'll stick, it'll stick. Um, and that is, um, um, he said, for someone who is concentrated, so someone who is concentrated will see things as they are. That the concentration, the practice of concentration, is one of the conditions for seeing things as they are. And seeing things as they are is kind of code word in Buddhism. It's, very, it's kind of a, a, an expression that's used a lot for insight into a reality as it actually is, as opposed to our interpretations, our judgments, uh, kind of the conceptual overlay we might put over things that, that prevents us from seeing things as they actually are. So the Buddha says, rather than saying that mindfulness is what's going to help you to see how things are, he says it's concentration is going to open that door to seeing how things are. And, um, and over and over again, you see in the suttas a tremendous emphasis on concentration and um, the importance of deep concentration um, practice. And down through the ages, um, let me say, so say this. So um, the English word concentration does not translate very smoothly back into the ancient language that the Buddha spoke. So we end up with a little bit of problems because we have this English word concentration. For one thing, people sometimes in English associate it with willpower. You know, kind of, they're going to forcefully hold my attention some places as an act of will. And sometimes they associate concentration with um, uh, holding the mind still or fi- fix, fixing the mind and having this fixation of mind as, as an act of will or as a laser kind of penetrates something. And so when you're told to concentrate, some people will kind of gear up everything and, and act as this mental kind of act of focus as if that's what concentration is. Um, there's no good word that translates into concentration. And so when we use the word concentration too much, it might uh, kind of misrepresent a little bit the nuances of what the Buddha had to say. There's a series of words in Pali that 
than are like concentration. Um, uh, I mean, I use like, sometimes sometimes translate as concentration. One of them is samatha, and samatha is probably best translated into English as tranquility or calmness. The other word is samadhi, and samadhi um, uh, I think should be translated a little bit different than concentration because samadhi is usually understood to be a state that you're in. Whereas uh, if, if concentration is understood as a state, maybe that's okay. But if, more often than not, I think people think of concentration as an act of a particular function of the mind that concentrates on something. The eye looks and concentrates. But samadhi is a whole, holistic state, uh, like a change, like an altered state of consciousness that you go into or occurs to you. And, um, and uh, also samadhi is very, um, at least in the initial stages of it, is very much uh, physical in nature as well as mental. And so I actually like the translation of composure for samadhi. And so rather than saying become concentrated when you talk about samadhi, you talk about becoming composed. And just kind of cute also because the etymology of the word samadhi in, in Sanskrit, sam means with, di means to pose or to stand, uh, is the same etymology as the English word composure. Calm is with and pose is pose, stand. So to be composed. Um, there's a whole um, uh, maybe family of words or concepts which are closed synonyms if not synonyms for samadhi or samatha that we could say in English words like um, certainly the words like being focused concentrated steadied stabilized composed um, uh, calmed tranquilized um, um You know, come to mind to some of these kinds of words. Um, another reason why the word concentration is a little bit difficult word to use to translate some of these terms is I think for some people, maybe not for many people, I don't know who, but concentration is sometimes seen as a single factor of mind. But actually, like I said, samadhi is much broader than that. And it's like an ecosystem that has many kind of elements, many species and plants and animals in it. So I'd like to give you a list from the Buddha, actually from Sariputra, from the suttas, of some of the factors of mind or some of the factors that come into play when a person gets concentrated, when a person enters into an absorption uh, of very strong, deep concentration. Um, um, Applied attention, sustained attention, Rapture, pleasure, unification of mind, feeling, perception, volition, zeal, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. It's pretty crowded in there. (laughs) So uh, often, you know, if if you get super concentrated suddenly, maybe by accident or something happens, you know, we don't analyze what's going on. It seems like a unified state, a, you know, a whole state in itself. But if you can kind of get in there and tease apart all the different things going on in the mind, you see that actually a lot of different things are going on in the mind when you get, when you get concentrated. Uh, just as if, you know, a simple perception of seeing people in a room, it seems like an innocent, simple thing to do. But if you, you know, do an MRI or something of the mind, 
and see what's going on, you realize that there's a lot of different functioning of the mind that creates the sense of space and distance in people and self and other. And it's a complicated thing that goes on, even though it seems like it's pretty obvious. You know, it's like couldn't couldn't be more obvious, right? We're sitting here in this room. Um, the value of concentration is perhaps seen. Um, uh, by the ways in which we're not concentrated. To be unsettled can often be quite painful and difficult. And often people want to get more settled. They feel unsettled in some way or other. And so they, they try to find some way to get settled. And, um, and when they're unsettled, it's often difficult to see things as they are. It's difficult sometimes to tap into our, our, our common sense. Sometimes it's difficult to tap into our wisdom. It's difficult to tap into our compassion, our care, our love. To be unsettled is not a very pleasant state to be in. Uh, to be settled uh, allows much more of our inner life to flow freely and healthily and allows us to kind of be wiser in our, in our life and more capable to do what we're going to do. To be scattered and very similar to be unsettled. To be fragmented are, are states which are not very comfortable in. And you, um, um, a human being which is, who's scattered or fragmented often cannot kind of uh, have a primary focus and really get into doing something because as soon as you focus on something the mind is going off somewhere else and some of you probably noticed that this evening that your mind was somewhat scattered or fragmented so if you're you can sit down the thing I find amazing is I can sit down with tremendous motivation to sit and meditate meditation you know this is it this is really important I'm, you know this is I'm connected to this great tradition of religion and sense of purpose and great goal and this is the most important thing for me in my life and finally get a chance to sit down to meditate and this is my chance to really do this really noble and wonderful and fantastic thing and you know nothing really needs to be done anywhere else you know the dishes have been washed and the job has been done and I sit down okay and as soon as I sit down my mind starts thinking about what's for dinner you know or you know who you know who won who's going to be in the playoffs in baseball right and I can't believe it, you know, all this serious intention, like, you know, what happened to it? I'm thinking about dinner menu, you know. So, so the mind goes off. So your intent, our intention is to do one thing, but the mind has a mind of its own. So then the mind is scattered or fragmented. Or the mind might be fragmented in many different directions. One minute it's dinner menus, the other minute it's baseball, the other minute it's what happened in high school. And so the mind's going off in all these different directions. But also our feelings, our emotional uh, uh, motions, emotional body might be also not cooperate in keeping us here and settled and, and whole at this time and place. Uh, you might have had a difficult day at work and maybe you came here after someone being really angry with you or yelled at you and you're frazzled or angry in return. And um, even though your mind maybe is not in, at work anymore, it's so affected, so it's such a big impact on your emotional body, your body, that that emotion of irritation or annoyance might be still there, lingering. And so the, um, the emotions are kind of going off in the direction of irritation or aversion. Uh, the mind is going off thinking about dinner and you're trying to stay on your breath because it's a noble thing to do. And so you're fragmented in all these different directions. Or perhaps you, uh, in addition to all that, you thought that maybe you know, you're kind of sleepy before coming to meditate here. So you thought it would be a really good idea to have a double espresso. And um, so you come here, you know, and 
you know, okay, I'm going to meditate, and it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, you're kind of like, you know, the washing machine agitates the clothes, right? So here, so, um, so your, your body's doing one thing, it wants to bolt, your emotions are doing another thing, and your mind is doing ten, ten different things, and your intention is to try to be here. So, you know, we're fragmented, all going in all, the, all these different directions. The process of what in shorthand can be called concentration is first and foremost a process of, of uh, reharmonizing, reunifying all the ways we're scattered or fragmented. And um, in fact, uh, one, of the, one of the common ways of describing samadhi is a practice of unification or harmonizing, unifying, um, composing. Unifying all the different faculties of who we are, so that our, our intentions, our thoughts, our, work, our, thought, our intentions, our thinking, our emotions, and our physical body are all unified and you know on the on track together, as opposed to be on different tracks. And when that happens, then we often feel settled. Often that comes with a feeling of deep settledness and relaxation. We can let go of so much that kind of wants to carry us away. And it can be a great relief to be settled and relaxed in some deep way. So as people do mindfulness practice, and uh, uh, focusing on the breath, focusing on what's going on in their experience, they're also cultivating and developing a settleness. They're they're developing a a unification, an arriving, coming here, uh, letting go of the distractions that pull us away, letting go of these different forces, settling, uh, relaxing, unwinding, calming down. And, um, and in doing that, unification work and settling work, the mind becomes more wieldy or malleable. Uh, another word that's used in the tradition is workable. The mind is something you can work. You can, uh, it's malleable. It's uh, pliable. A mind which is uh, not concentrated is said to be a mind that's dry and brittle. So, so you know, the, our mind, the state of our mind, can vary quite a bit. And if it's fragmented and scattered, then um, um, it's not very workable. As some of you probably found out today, you, know, you can sit down and say, I want to sit here and follow my breath, and your mind has a mind of its own. And you try to bring it back, but the mind goes off again, goes off again, goes off again. Or the mind has resistances, or the mind has fears, or worries, or judgments, or is hard in some way, or has other things going on. But at some point, when the, you can relax deeply enough, have enough tranquility and calm, then the mind, it's kind of like uh, meditation practice is a tenderizer of the mind. So the mind, rather than being hard or brittle, becomes very soft. Rather than being like um, uh, cold beeswax, um, it becomes beeswax which is softened. It's warmed up and it becomes, and once you have beeswax which is softened, you can shape it into something beautiful. So once your mind has softened, warmed up, harmonize, come together, then you can begin using the mind rather than being used by your mind, meaning the mind, pull, the thoughts pull you this way and that way. Now you can tell your mind what you want it to do. You should stay here on the breath. Stay focused here. Then um, your mind will. And when that happens, it starts becoming a delight. And you're encouraged to enjoy the delight of a settled mind. 
enjoy the, uh, the delight of a mind which is not at, in conflict with itself or in cross purposes with itself or a mind which is not scattered or fragmented going off in many different directions. The mind is really here and ready to do work, ready to focus. One of the definitions of a mind like that is a mind in the Buddhist tradition is a mind which is free of the five hindrances. Um, so free of it's free of, of being caught by sensual desire. Desire for comfort, desire for sensuality is something that can often you know, pull the mind off in all kinds of directions. I can't uh, probably enumerate how many times people have told me on meditation retreats that they spent a fair amount of time being lost in lustful fantasies. So that's kind of, you know, that hindrance is taking them off. They're, you know, sometimes they say, oh, it's very pleasant, that's why I do it. Um, but still, you know, you're not in charge, you know. Who's in charge? What's going on? And then there's a hindrance of aversion, ill will. Then there's the um, uh, restlessness, anxiety, worry. Then there's um, uh, sloth and torpor, resistance, boredom, lethargy as a strategy. And then there's doubt. All these kind of forces, called the hindrances, are the forces that kind of, some of the forces that keep the mind fragmented. When the fragmenting forces of the mind are no longer operating, then you feel like the, the mind is something you can use. You can stay here and be present. You're not worried anymore about being pulled off. You don't feel the tendency to be pulled off anymore. You're just here in a very solid, settled, complete way. Then that gives birth, birth to a certain kind of delight or satisfaction or sense of well-being. Um, here I am. This is what's going on. And this is um, called in the Buddhist tradition the joy born from seclusion. Strange expression, maybe, born from seclusion. Uh, It means secluded from the hindrances. The mind, the hindrances are not gone. That's why you're secluded from them. You're kind of of, uh, out of their radar for a while. But um, you haven't purified your mind once and for all. But these hindrances are now kept at bay or kept gone or kind of settled enough. And so you're secluded from them. And um, so the mind is freed or secluded from these forces. And there's a certain kind of joy that gets born with that. When that joy is there and the the fragmenting forces are gone, then there's a feeling that the mind is unified. We're kind of unified. sense of unification of mind. There can also, in addition to the joy and unification, there can arise a sense of well-being, a deeper sense of satisfaction, of ease, of lightness, of, of um, sometimes it's called happiness. And also, because the mind is not fragmented and has these qualities of being kind of lighter, happier, glad, unified, now it's possible to apply the mind attention in some direction where you want to apply it to. So you want to say, okay, I'm going to apply my attention on the breath. And it's also possible then not only to apply it, to turn the attention, make a decision, okay, I'm going to have the attention there my breath and do that. Then it's possible also to sustain the attention on the breath over time. So now I've listed what's called uh, uh, five factors of absorptive meditation. What's required, for, uh, five primary factors are needed to get absorbed in the meditation practice. So there's um, the, that uh, that sense of sec- joy from, that comes from the seclusion of the hindrances and not being fragmented, not being um, um, 
scattered, you know, some kind of joy. Finally, you're arrived, you're here, you're connected to yourself. If you're really connected, the joy of being connected and present and available to do work. And then a sense of well-being that comes from a similar kind of thing. And then a sense of unification, gathered together. And then, then be able to do actually do the work of applying the mind and sustaining the mind. These are called the five jhanic factors, the five factors of absorption. And absorption is a very important function, uh, aspect of meditation practice. To be able to get into your practice and get absorbed by it in the same way that you'd get absorbed by a really good book or a really good hobby. Um, you know, it can be very pleasant to get absorbed in a book. Uh, and uh, you lose track of time, you lose track of a lot of things, you lose track of all your problems. And, and so here you are, you're really absorbed. There can, there can be feelings of pleasure and delight that arise as a result. The first time that I experienced the certain kind of, uh, I'll say it this way, the, 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 there's a, um, the joy, the joy that's born from seclusion, it's the inner sense of well-being and delight that's born from the fragment, the fragmenting forces of the mind are gone, is said to be a joy that is non-sensual in nature. So there's joy which is sensual in nature. You can get a massage and it feels really good. Uh, there's a certain kind of delight that comes from stimulating our senses. But there's also something that's non-sensual. It's a technical word. Um, uh, some people like to translate it as spiritual joy because it seems to be connected to a spiritual practice, not to worldly success and worldly situations. The first time I experienced something like this, something like this was when I was about 11 or 12 years old that I can remember. And um, I used to take a bus to school and uh, back and forth to school, a public bus, I had to pay for my ticket. And on um, the way home from school, I lived near the end of the bus line. And um, there was the driver and then the conductor who sold the tickets. So I would get on the bus and I would pay my, get my ticket and then I'd sit down. And near the end of the, uh, in the last few stops, in the last, I don't know what, five minutes of the trip, um, there wasn't really going to be anybody more coming on the bus because we were getting to the end of the line. So the conductor would go sit at like the second or third seat back from the driver. And he would uh, tally up all the different tickets he sold. Round trip, one way, children, senior citizen, I don't know all the things he had. And he had this ledger. Um, and he would keep, you know, keep accounts, you know, how many different kind of tickets he sold. And, um, and I noticed that if I sat in a particular seat, like he was like the third seat back, if I sat like in the fourth seat back, then uh, if I watched him do his work, I would feel really good. I just feel these feelings of warmth and unification and delight and satisfaction and everything was right in the world. And, this. and uh, I, didn't, I had no idea what I was doing, what, what was going on until many, many years later. Uh, I just knew there was good stuff. So I would always try to strategize and get to sit there at you know, that particular seat in the bus so I could be there when he went tallying up his numbers. And I never thought about it much. I just, you know, it's kind of like, almost like an instinct to do this. But what I understand now is that for whatever reason, I, I was, I, I, I kind of was borrowing his concentration, kind of sharing on his concentration. And I got concentrated on his work, kind of focusing on what he did. 
And in that kind of focus, kind of narrowing of my attention, all kinds of things fell away. Um, this sense of well-being bubbled up in me. So as, as we get absorbed, there's this, um, uh, these wonderful symptoms that begin um, happening that I mean, offer a tremendous sense of well-being. Uh, in Pali, sometimes it's called nimitta, in sign. If you have the flu, you can, you, uh, being um, weak and nauseous are signs of having the flu, right? When you enter into an absorptive state, then you have signs what that feels like. You feel light, you might feel bubbly, you might feel warm, you might feel joy, uh, you might feel really solid. There's many ways in which you might feel, uh, but you know, there are signs or symptoms of entering into these kind of absorptive state, just like there are signs or symptoms of entering into a flu state. So, uh, and those, those signs and symptoms have a lot to do with our body. If you kind of feel this warmth, this uh, unification, this flow, this um, stability, um, a variety of things can happen. And different people, so some, some, a lot of different things can happen as people get absorbed in their meditation. There's shifts that happen in the body, there's shifts that happens emotionally and in the mind, and uh, it can be quite an adventure to see all the different kind of shifts that can happen. Um, in Buddhism, so, uh, the, the purpose of these kinds of shift, uh, absorptive states, concentration states, is not for the joy and the delight they can give, give us. Um, some people uh, think that's the purpose. The point is not to feel joy and delight, though it, that joy and delight can be very healing. And part of, the, part of the reason for doing this concentration practice is that often it heals a lot of the psychological woundedness that people carry around with them. And it's also said it can, it can but I, don't offer this, I do not offer this as a promise or a guarantee. Um, it also can um, help a lot with physical illness, a variety of kinds. Uh, sometimes when I've been in deep states of absorption, um, it almost feels, or it has, it feels like, I don't know if it's really happening, but it feels like healing energy is kind of coursing through my, my, my veins. Just feel this healing energy just moving through, cleaning and purifying and healing things that are there. Um, and um, so I, th- I think that concentration practice, in deep, this deep joy and well-being and harmonization is very, very healing, of certainly of the ways in which we're psychologically fragmented. And it can rewire us. It's kind of like we have a cellular memory sometimes of trauma. We have cellular, me- cellular, mem- cellular memories of um, certain pains or fears or, or um, things that happen or you know, psychologically happen to us. And uh, sometimes they get deeply embedded, so they become our personality almost. And part of the function of deep concentration is to get down below that conditioned personality part of our, who we are that place where we've been conditioned by life experiences in some negative way. And it's possible to get in there and recondition it. And offer, you know, by feeling this, you feel this delight and warmth and trust and confidence that comes with concentration practice. And you're feeling these wonderful uh, um, experiences. And it's kind of in there, kind of saturating or, or, or moving into the body, into the cells. And it's like you're, you're re-educating the cells in a new way. And you can actually, their personalities can shift quite dramatically from doing concentration practice. But the ultimate purpose of concentration practice is not the joy and delight of concentration practice, but rather to use the tremendous stability 
that concentration practice gives the mind. The tremendous purity. Concentration practice purifies the mind. The tremendous purity of the mind so you can see clearly. If you want to see through a window, make sure that it's clear and clean. You have to purify it, you have to clean it so you can see through it to see what's really going on. Um, or the, an analogy that is used in Buddhism is that of a pond. If the pond is muddy, you can't see the bottom. But if you settle the pond, let all the, all the mud settle, then you get clear water and you can see to the, right to the bottom and see all the fish and everything. So the same thing with the mind. The, the function of the concentration practice is to settle things enough so that you can have the clarity to see what's really there. Um, it also... Um, um, and one of the things we can see with strong concentration practice is how unsatisfactory or how painful certain things are that we used to do that we thought were joyful when we did them. Does that make sense what I just said? We can do things which, when we do them, we think this is really the best. And then later we can say, what was I thinking? <laughs> and um, and uh, strong, deep, uh, settled concentration practice can give us a, a, a very alternative point of view to understand some of the things we used to do or have been doing and realize, wait a minute, there's something, a much better game in town. There's a deeper sense of well-being. The thing I was doing is not actually that pleasant after all. And sometimes uh, uh, there's, a, there's a natural willingness to let go of certain things we have been doing because we see that there's a much, much more, uh, something that has much more integrity to it, much more uh, sense of well-being, or much happier uh, because uh, from the vantage point of the strong concentration. It doesn't mean you have to stay in the strong concentration point, all, uh, stay, uh, strong concentration state all the time, but the concentration gives you this reference point to understand things in a new way. Um, the constant, strong concentration also is a, a strengthening of the mind. The mind gets stronger with con- more concentrated it is, the stronger the mind is, and the faster we can see. The stronger, more penetrating, and kind of more um, not fa- maybe faster is uh, um, the, the quicker is, or, or, or the more the more subtlety, the nuances we can see. The mind becomes very very perceptive when it's strongly concentrated, and um, and so it gives mindfulness an edge. It kind of helps the mindfulness to be much more penetrating. So the idea is to uh, yoke together, bring together the mindfulness and the concentration. And one of the purest forms of mindfulness arises when we're very in one of these deep concentration states. It says that the fourth jhana, for those of you who know, the fourth absorption, is where mindfulness is totally purified. So mindfulness and concentration are come together and work together. That's when the two of them allow some of the more uh, deepest work that Buddhism points to, which is the work of liberation. That the deepest work of liberation is best done with strong, strong, strong uh, powers of concentration and strong powers of mindfulness. And that requires us to be unified, to be harmonized, and not scattered anymore. To, to have worked through, and sometimes it takes years and years, to work through some of the complexes and, and uh, hang-ups and issues that we have that keeps us from being fragmented, keeps us from being settled, keeps us from really um, dropping down.
sometimes um, mindfulness practice is contrasted with concentration practice, as if they're two different practices. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. You find some teachers who say, yes, they're completely different. And you have other teachers who say, no, 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 they should be, always be done together. Some teachers say, oh, you should always start with mindfulness, and then you do concentration. Others say, you should start with the concentration, and then you do for mindfulness. And there's no shortage in the religious world of opinions. <laughs> and not only there's no shortage of opinions, they're usually opinions about who is right. And it's seldom them. <laughs> um, so there's very people, you know, in the Buddhist, in the Buddhist world, in, in, none of you have succumbed to this or maybe even know about this, but um, there are intellectual or philosophical wars about this issue, about what is the right meditation. Is it, is it mindfulness first, concentration first, is the combining them, how is it done, this and that. And uh, there's no end of this wonderful, great conflict uh, of who's right. And then people go back to the suttas of the Buddha and try to say, well, you know, if you read him, he says this. And, you know, so it's interesting. Um, uh, my, so, I'll give you an opinion. <laughs> the um, um, mindfulness practice, there's, there's a whole series of things that are mindfulness practices. There's a set of things called mindfulness practices. And there's a set of practices called concentration practices. And those two sets overlap. So some mindfulness practices don't fit in the middle where concentration and mindfulness overlap. Some concentration practices are on their own. And some practices uh, are right there where they, they overlap. And both are going on at the same time. As, regardless of where you start, very strong mindfulness practice, very strong concentration practice, sooner or later, will require each other. You can't have mindfulness without concentration, you can't have concentration without mindfulness, if you want to go really, really deep in the practice. But how you get to the place where you're deep, um, you know, there's so many different ways to get there. I don't think there's a right way, even though teachers will say, this is the right way. What that means, if someone tells you, this is the right way, this is the true, this is the way the Buddha said, what you might think of doing is to reframe it in your mind so you can be kind to them, <laughs> and say, um, I bet that was the right way for, for him. It's usually him. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, usually I try to be gender neutral. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, they're usually hymns doing this war. Um, and um, it probably worked for that person. And um, I think we have to be very respectful of how many different kinds of people there are, how many different kinds of minds there are, how many minds actually function differently. And uh, some people are more tactile in nature, some are more visual, some are more auditory, some are more introverts and more extroverts, and this and that way, and all these kind of different things. And so rather than having some fixed idea of this is the right way, um, you know, you need to kind of actually assess who, you're who your audience, who you are you're talking to, and realize and modify 
they realize they have to, have to modify the practices to suit the person. And it's, in the Theravada tradition, there's a classic list of 40 different meditation practices that a good meditation teacher is supposed to know about. And then when people come, they're supposed to assess the person they're, t- they're talking to uh, and decide, decide which of those 40 is suitable for that person. So, um, so. Is this okay? You guys in, in, in with me enough? Is that right? I can't, I can't, maybe I can't even ask that question because I won't get a good answer. Um, someone, anyone not with me? <laughs> um, I really wanted to, uh, I wanted to tell you, it's running out of time. Uh, really, uh, what I wanted to do tonight was to uh, give you, uh, uh, try to t- um, uh, make a... Um, an evocative description of the similes that the Buddha used for deep concentration practice. He had these four beautiful similes. And um, some of them have to do with water. Water is often the, the uh, symbol or the uh, used as, as a, almost symbolically for the, the kind of joy and delight that arises when uh, people get absorbed in their meditation practice. Um, but I think that um, we'll let it go. And maybe we can do that next week. Uh, and then maybe use similes. And maybe this talk that started off just as a one-night talk will go on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do the similes, and, uh, the great similes, and uh, try to evoke them and make them come alive for you. And, and they're images, and so you, those of you who are more visual in nature, maybe you can get really into these images. And then, um, at some point, when I finish with the concentration stuff, then, what I said, I'll give a talk or talk about uh, what insight is. So the sequence was mindfulness, the first talk, then mindfulness practice, the second talk, and then now try to cover concentration. And then once I've done that, then we'll talk about insight, because the function of mindfulness and concentration is to allow and bring the insight. So what does insight mean? It's in our name, right? Insight Meditation Center. And then uh, once we've talked about insight, then we set the stage and we can talk about liberation. So if we hang in there long enough, (laughs) we'll get there. So um, I hope it worked for you okay. I hope it didn't seem so strange. Um, We have a couple of minutes. If anyone would like to ask questions about what I've said to clarify or anything, because it can be very confusing, this whole thing about concentration, or seem very foreign or discouraging. Here in the back. Uh, Could you describe a concentration meditation for me? There's many, but um, one of the ones that we use in our tradition the most is concentration on the breath. The breath. If you stay focused on the breath and don't let the mind wander from the breath, and the breath can become a concentration practice. The breath also works very well as a mindfulness focus, so it has both functions. And, um, but you know, there, there are some practices which are almost ex- seemingly almost exclusively about concentration as opposed to some combination of mindfulness and concentration. And um, so... Uh, uh, one, one in, in our tradition, one of the ones that uh, a classic one is um, is called is um, 
involves seeing a uh, seeing an image in the mind's eye. It's usually a, um, a round image, like an image of white light or a image of a colored disc, and then somehow taking that, that image and focusing on it in a one-pointed way until you kind of get absorbed into it, you kind of like plunge into it and everything else disappears but that image. Thank okay. you. Over here. You might have turned on. Um, I'm enchanted by the combination of zeal and equanimity. Does Lister see in the Yeah. Hmm? Could you comment on that? So there's this long list of factors that come into play with concentration. And um, one of the nice things about that is um, different ones of them can be strong and other ones of them can be weak. So some people, um, their sense of determination or volition is really strong and that's the primary thing that helps them get concentrated. For other people, it's a sense of, uh, the word for zeal is chanda, uh, zeal, or uh, kind of, uh, rather than vo- uh, intentionality or volition, it's a very strong desire, healthy kind of desire. They really want this. You know, if you really want to get concentrated. And often we, 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 we get the message that uh, you're not supposed to have any desires if you meditate. But there's a, pro- as my art- newsletter article this time talks about, there can be very appropriate desires to have, and they can be very strong. And some people, that, that's what you know, helps them get concentrated. For other people, um, it's a strong, they have a strong access to states of equanimity or peace or tranquility. And that's what helps them get concentrated. Um, so um, equanimity is one of the um, fruits of very strong concentration practice. Because when the mind is no longer fragmented, then it's possible for the mind to no longer be for and against things. If the mind's not for and against things, the mind's not going to waver. It's going to stay balanced, stay equanimous. And to some degree, you need some of that equanimity in order to be settled. You can't be really deeply settled unless there's some degree of equanimity. And that equanimity becomes stronger and stronger the deeper you go into the concentration. Until at some point, equanimity is the primary uh, uh, symptom or sign that characterizes that state. I I don't know if that addressed your question at all. We can talk more later. We need to stop. Let's meet the last one. Oh, here. I'll repeat the question. Um, if, it's, if it's simple enough. It seems to me that as I get more concentrated, uh, and I've been doing, both in a particular sitting and I have done many sittings, then I, my mind wants to do choiceless awareness. And is that related? Because I have lots of equanimity? It could be. It could be. Um, the um, choiceless awareness is usually understood to be a, a form of mindfulness practice where the mind is just um, very present in the present moment. It's not going to leave the present moment. But rather than choosing one object to focus on, like the breath, the mind is just open in a choiceless way to take in whatever experience comes to it. So it could be sounds, itches, you know, thoughts, whatever arises. And the mind is very, usually very open, in order to do this well, the mind has to be fairly concentrated and settled. Otherwise, the mind keeps getting distracted. And um, some people are very strongly, like Svita up there, is very strongly drawn to do that choiceless awareness practice. It can be a, a very helpful and appropriate practice for some people to do. Um, 
And over a long career of meditation practice, different meditation practices are appropriate. Different things are being worked out and done. And so there can be an intuitive sense, uh, sense of what is it that needs to be done at this point. Um, the, um, I did a choiceless awareness practice for a long time uh, until I kind of reached a certain kind of plateau with it. It was very satisfying, but then I felt like I got to a plateau. And then um, I, uh, I changed the nature of it a little bit to kind of uh, to let it go further. So um, I hope this is a helpful talk. Um, it can be discouraging to talk about concentration. It can seem like lofty states that are very distant from what people, where people are at. Uh, but I think it's also helpful to know a little bit about concentration because even in small doses, it is then possible to utilize it more in uh, daily life meditation practice. And also it's, uh, having some sense of what's possible. Um, the, uh, the danger of knowing what's possible is that uh, we strive or we judge ourselves or we all never get it, we feel discouraged. So that's a negative side. The positive side is that if you know something is possible, then it's possible to go there in that direction. If you don't even know about it, why would you do it? So maybe it's an unfortunate example, but um, it's like the four minute mile, right? It, no one, it was, the assumption was no one can run a mile in four, min, four minutes. That was the kind of bottom line belief. And then someone was able to break that four-minute mile, run under mile under four minutes, and then lots of people did it. Maybe none of you, but <laughs> lots of people did it. So, um, um, and but in various kind of situations, when you know when you know something is possible, it isn't just something a decision that you make, but there's almost I think I think a kind of a, a kind of inner, almost unconscious or subconscious processing that allows us to do something when we finally see that it's possible. There's a, hur- there's a hurdle which is uh, overcome when we see what the possibility is. But we see it and we think it's impossible, then, you know, uh, why would anybody do it? The last thing I'll say about concentration for tonight, please bear, bear with me, is um, one of the key teachings of Buddhism or early Buddhism, the Buddha, is the importance of intentions, our volition, our mo- what, we're, what we're motivated by. So our intentions. And um, acting on our intentions, living our intentions, has um, tremendous repercussions down through time in our lives. So if you act on intentions which are intentions to cause harm in the world, that has tremendous, uh, it ripples out from us, it ripples into us in deep ways, very penetrating ways. If we act on intentions to, to be helpful, that ripples out in the world in many way, different ways. It also ripples out into ourselves in many different ways. And um, intention can be very powerful. But one way that intentions become amazingly powerful and especially in the inner, inner life, really changing something inwardly, is when we set an int- intention with a mind that's strongly concentrated. When the mind is deeply harmonized and settled and calm and has a strength of concentration and mind is malleable and workable, then our intentions can really go far, can really make a big difference, can really can make a huge karmic difference in our very being, who we are. So, at the end of many uh, 
Buddhist events, there is a practice of stating an intention. It's called dedication of merit. So, for whatever degree that uh, we've gotten concentrated here tonight, or been inspired, or learned, or benefited from this teachings on concentration, may um, an intention arise for all of us that um, this teaching and this practice benefit others, that somehow it helps our compassionate heart travel out in, um, in all directions, inward to help um, bring some peace and well-being and care and forgiveness to ourselves, and outward to do the same thing for all beings everywhere, so that all beings everywhere can know the wonderful compassion of a concentrated heart. Thank you.